MRAP snack. This month for the snack, we have a bit of a different piece than what we usually do mid-month. Dan McCollum, who you all well know, sits down with Matt Jordan, an emergency doc at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and he was last deployed with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit to Afghanistan. This unit was intimately involved in the massive evacuation efforts from Afghanistan in August 2021. The event was tumultuous, and in the U.S. there was a lot of argument and disagreement over that evacuation, but sometimes in that we lose the stories of those who did the job, did the heavy lifting, and saved lives on the front lines. The story is really about two phases. The initial work that Matt and his team did caring for evacuees, and then the mass casualty event that occurred at the Kabul airport. Before we get into the story, though, Matt has a little bit of a disclaimer he needs to get out of the way. The views expressed are my own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, or the United States government. Now that we got that out the way, the long and short of it is, is that you got notification that we were going to be evacuating from Afghanistan and that they needed some medical help to make sure that this went well. So you get the call, you're getting orders to go to Kabul. So that we've been doing some training and rehearsing in this area of the world in the event that this actually went down. And essentially, we got word, prepare all your equipment, and we got phased in over a few days. We deployed as part of the shock trauma platoon. So I was the officer in charge. Since this is the military and abbreviations reign supreme, the shock trauma platoon is often referred to as the STP, and Matt will refer to it as such throughout the piece. They threw about... 250 of us onto one of these big C-17 cargo aircraft, and we were all carrying our, our usual combat loadout. So that's the Kevlar helmet, your flak vest with your body armor plates. I had a 9mm pistol on my hip, and then your main pack, extra clothes, toiletries, sleeping essentials. Altogether, this was about 130 pounds uh, between my <laughs> the stuff on my chest and the stuff on my back. And then our STP equipment flew in on a couple of different aircraft on the way in. We got there, set up a medical clinic, essentially geared towards treating evacuees that were going to be needed any sort of medical attention. Our obviously plan that we had going in is not what we ended up executing. Our initial plan was to work out of, you know, our large basex tents that we had been working out of during the past year of training for the deployment. And then just because of the conditions, we ended up inside this terminal in a room that's usually for VIPs and people. It's like an airport lounge, essentially, just very, very small. It's not like the Delta Lounge at one of the airports you would go to in the United States or anything like that. In terms of the layout, this ED has four beds designed for full resuscitation, kitted out with a monitor, an old school vent, and all the basic resuscitation supplies specifically for trauma. They had pretty much no lab setup except for a glucometer, but fortunately they did have an ultrasound machine that they could use for some basic kind of screening and evaluation. We could take care of really as many people as they could give us. Our mass CAS number would be anything over five or six. The other thing to point out is that our little shock trauma platoon has no surgical capabilities. So we really just functioned as that bridge between the first responders and then surgical care. So we were essentially doing damage control resuscitation. And then we also had our nurses, as well as a number of our corpsmen cross-trained in something called in-route care, which is really transport medicine from the battlefield or from our STP to a higher level of care. There was a, a NATO Roll 2 hospital about 200 or 250 meters away from where we were. 
So this had been a hardened structure that had been there for years as the NATO force had been in Afghanistan for 20 years. So they had some pretty significant and robust medical resources available at that point. So this was essentially a small ER, probably 10 beds or so, multiple trauma teams, multiple operating rooms. They had come in to kind of supplement the Norwegians who were actually staffing that role too at the time, as well as some US mill. There was a small lab capability. They had a pharmacy as well as a CT scanner and x-ray. So compared to us, they had a lot of different resources that we would end up needing. Initially, the majority of the work that Matt and his team was involved in was screening all the evacuees and providing medical attention to that group. I would say at our peak, we're probably seeing about 60 patients a day in our little medical clinic. But the corpsmen outside were probably evaluating four times that amount. The folks that we ended up seeing the most inside our little clinic was the syncable episodes and the decreased responsiveness for the folks who had been dehydrated and just not eating for two, three, four days. It was hot. It was probably in the 80s during the day, sunny most of the time, and it really wasn't that cold at night. So it was just these August summer days. Yeah, imagine some of these evacuees had probably been traveling for many days with like little time to prepare for this once it was kind of made aware that, that this was the time to evacuate if they were going to attempt to do so. So imagine some of them had very little time to gather food and other necessities for that trip. So they were probably running out of that stuff as they basically got to y'all. It's really hard to describe about the folks, the Afghanis who were trying to get to the airport, what they gave up to get here. There were countless people who came in with just the clothes on their back. The lucky ones were able to take maybe one bag. I can't even tell you the number of people who were walking around without shoes on. And they'd been, you talk to them, two, three, four days just trying to get inside the gates of the airport to this point. Like, hey, you're so close. That was um, definitely one of the harder parts of this whole thing was just seeing how much suffering a lot of these folks went through just to get to this point. While dealing with battlefield trauma poses so many challenges, Matt and his team found early on the work was very difficult because it wasn't what they had trained for. Being focused on adult trauma, we don't come equipped with supplies to take care of children. All of our medications are for adults. We don't have liquid meds. There's no pediatric-sized blood pressure cuff. I think our smallest ET tube was like a 5.0. The smallest IV was a 20-gauge. And then, obviously, for this whole thing, no military mission, unless you know you're going to do a evacuation or some sort of humanitarian, is going to come with the usual necessities that people need, right? Yeah. So there aren't going to be the diapers, sizes, you know, zero through five. You're not going to have the feminine hygiene products, the baby formula, all the stuff that when you step back, you're like, oh, yeah, these are the basic necessities that we need. How do we get those here so that we can give these out to people who have been traveling to try to get here, to try to get out of the country on what may be the worst days of their lives. And I imagine with all this going on that people were having to stretch a little bit, working outside of what they were normally tasked with doing. Throwing anybody into this kind of situation, you're going to have to kind of adapt to what's going on on the ground. Part of our STP setup, we actually have a dentist that comes with us. So our dentist, uh, Dr. Jared Dara, was on the ground with us there. And in any kind of this stuff when he's not doing dental work, which obviously he was not doing routine dental care in Afghanistan. He was our triage officer in case of mass casualty. He was prepared for that. We had trained to that with all of our previous training for this. But on the day-to-day, he actually was our ambulance driver as well. So that was one person kind of working outside their comfort zones. And then I would say the corpsmen probably had the hardest jobs. 
So you're sticking these relatively young people, 20s, early 30s, out in the hot sun with the evacuees, and their job is to evaluate the people who are waiting to come inside. Because just because they are here on the airport now doesn't mean that they're immediately going to get on a plane and immediately leave. I mean, we're processing thousands to tens of thousands of people a day. So there was a wait. Obviously, anybody who had any sort of critical illness or anything like that, they got pulled. And most of those people who did get pulled came in on litters. Otherwise, the corpsman did their best and would evaluate them, give them whatever they had out of their med bag, whatever they could do out there to, to try to help these people. That's got to be so tough. As medical people, Like we just want to help everybody. And when you're in a resource-strapped environment where you couldn't guarantee every person a flight out, even if you wanted to, like it just wasn't a possibility. And so I imagine it was there was a lot of distress from having to tell people no, that you can't pull them out even if you wanted to. I think the hardest part was probably for the riflemen and the trigger pullers, for better or worse to call them, who were actually manning the gates. Those were the ones who had to say, hey, yeah, you can come in, you can come in. They're the ones checking the paperwork initially and doing the initial searches and saying, yeah, hey, you're, you're coming in. In addition to all of that, the space outside of the clinic that they were working in wasn't safe. Matt recounts times they were called out to respond to a medical emergency or a possible medical emergency, and each time the team had to consider safety of venturing out, meaning putting on their flak jacket, their helmet, they always had to stay protected. There was an IED, a suicide bomber, that detonated an explosive vest at one of the gates on the southern end of the airport. So we sent our ambulance crew, which included the dentist who I had mentioned is the ambulance driver, as well as the, the triage officer during any mass casualty event, as well as two corpsmen down there. And it uh, happened right around our shift change. So we ended up sending myself and my day team up to the hospital to kind of plus up what abilities they had. And then the night team, which was led by the emergency medicine physician assistant, uh, Ashley Griggs, opened up a casualty collection point at our little medical area. So we took over another small room and essentially put out the stuff that we were prepared to use for this deployment, all of our trauma equipment, with the idea that we would offload the ER and the roll two and try to take the walking wounded so that they could care for the more critically ill. And so these trauma patients, particularly mass casualty, events are, I think, where military medicine really shines. They really are like the thought leaders, in my opinion, about how to take care of these folks. Tell me about some of the patients that you saw. The first patient that showed up when I was there was unfortunately deceased. So the medics had kind of done everything in the field. You know, they put a, uh, an LMA in, they did the bilateral needle decompression but the patient was dead. It was hard because I'm looking down at somebody who is wearing the same uniform that I am. And you don't know at that point, is it, hey, is this somebody from your unit? That hits you hard because this is just this young person who is there with you doing the same thing you are, trying to get a mission done, try to kind of do good for a number of people. I can only imagine because the trauma patients that come into my ER, I rarely know anything at all about them. They're certainly not part of some of the same group of folks that, that I am. So that, that connection has got to be tougher. A key learning point that I think that is often drilled into folks for military medicine is the importance of at least decompressing both sides of the chest for traumatic arrest. That, that's something that uh, really gets 
I think, appropriately emphasized in uh, military trauma care. Uh, After you saw this first patient, what were some other ones that came in? Shortly after that first patient, we ended up getting a super sick guy. One of the ambulances pulled up. This time, actually an ER doctor from the special purpose MAGTAF. Dr. Cook and her team had done the best to kind of stabilize this casualty at the point of injury. I think he had upper and lower extremity tourniquets on. He was in a pelvic binder because he had an unstable pelvis. They threw big IVs in him, bilateral chest tubes. This dude is just peppered with shrapnel. He's tachycardic, he's hypotensive, he's altered. He got a whole blood transfusion started on him at some point. Thankfully, a lot of the surgical teams who came into the country brought blood with them. But yeah, this guy's essentially on the ground at the ambulance bay on a litter looking terrible. One of those folks who you know is is circling the drain kind of trauma. Myself there and then one of the British trauma teams was working on this guy and everybody knew he needed an OR. So got a trauma team on him. Obviously, there's no OR available right now. So they're trying to open up a bed, try to open up an OR. One of the uh, UK anesthesia providers, you know, intubates him right on the ground of the ambulance bay right there as we're waiting for a bed. You see multiple people pushing. He's getting like two bags pressure infused into him there just to try to keep his blood pressure up and buy him some time to get to an OR table. There's a lot of really amazing and, and highly applicable points there. One is is the huge emphasis on the use of tourniquets because we know that tourniquets save lives. And if any listeners here are currently listening in their car and their car doesn't have at least two tourniquets in it, you need to get on Amazon and buy yourself a couple of cat tourniquets and learn how to use them because tourniquets are huge. And I think the military appropriately emphasizes that. But I also love the use of blood products. This isn't a saltwater deficiency that we're going to fix with saline. And it often uh, this will be whole blood in this situation, but you could sort of substitute at your community shop the idea that if you had a patient that looked a lot like this, that a massive transfusion protocol where the individual components of the blood would kind of be matched in a very similar way. It just happens to be the military tends to use whole blood for a variety of uh, logistical reasons. And I think you're seeing even in these in the more academic institutions at this point, they're starting to move to whole blood, even in the level three ER. Granted, it's a military ER that I work in. We've shifted to using whole blood and trauma. That's awesome. And, and this very, very sick trauma patient was not your only patient at this time. Uh, he was not. So at the same time, I can tell you there's probably four different time frames during this whole thing where I have a very clear picture that's probably going to stay with me for the rest of my life. But I remember looking around at the same time, and I see one of my corpsmen and a medic, one of the army medics treating a relatively stable through and through GSW to the chest. They've got dressings on both sides and have him sitting up in his position of comfort, just again, kind of waiting for him to be able to move somewhere else. Off to my left was another trauma team there bagging an infant. And then we had these Air Force pararescue men there in front of me dealing with another casualty who's lying in left lateral accumbent with a bunch of blood coming out of his mouth. And they're talking about Criking him. I don't think that I will ever forget just looking around and seeing all of these people and, and seeing all of the incredible work that the medical teams around me were doing from the corpsmen to the PAs to the nurses to the physicians and the trauma teams. Okay, so Matt, we've got all these these patients that came through and a lot of them got stabilized. And I'm sure that, that it was far in excess of, of what could immediately be provided for there. And so you had to get these folks evacuated. Tell me a little bit about how long it took to get them medevaced out. We saw a decent amount of casualties, a lot of really sick people, a lot of people in the OR, the surgeons and all the OR teams operated through the night on 
many, many, many casualties to stabilize them, do damage control surgery. I think it took a little under 24 hours for us to move everybody out of the hospital who was critically ill out of Afghanistan to higher levels of care. Truly a feat given how sick a lot of these people were. I mean, the CCAT teams, which are the Air Force teams that move the sickest of the sick people, they got in there pretty quick and they took lots of people out and took excellent care of them to get them to those higher levels of cares for follow-on surgeries and follow-on medical care. So Matt, I understand for the next uh, four days or so, y'all continue to take care of both evacuees and troops to help continue with this process. Tell me a little bit about what it was like as you and your team were leaving Afghanistan. Ultimately, myself and my team left in the early hours of August 30th, the same way we came in, and the same way that tens of thousands of folks had left before me in the back of a, another C-17 cargo plane. Stuffed in, sitting on the floor, just trying to get as comfortable as you can on a giant cargo plane with 250 people next to you. About an hour into the flight, the Air Force loadmaster kind of got on the PA system and said, hey, we're officially departed Afghan airspace. And it was quiet on the aircraft, uh, silent. It was just the silent acknowledgement that uh, some of the hardest days of our lives were now behind us. So Matt, I, I can't uh, help but, but say thank you to you, your entire team, all of the, the, the brave men and women of the U.S. military and, and those uh, aiding them to try to make this evacuation as, as safe as possible. Um, I can only imagine the difficulties that you had, all of the logistics that went into it, all the training that was required to be ready for this. But I sincerely thank all of y'all for, for the work that you did to, to make the evacuation go as well as it did. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody about kind of what really the pinnacle of military emergency medicine looks like, being able to participate and care for people and other humans during such a brutal time for them. And then, of course, being able to work with an incredible group of people from the Army, from the Air Force, from the Navy, as well as our, our NATO partners, especially the, the Norwegians and the the UK teams. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks again. <laughs>